Rosaria Champagne Butterfield is a former tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She's a former skeptic of all things Christian, and she's a former lesbian. She's actually a lot of things formerly. But today, Dr. Butterfield is a Christian and a mom of four children, a homemaker, and the wife of a Presbyterian pastor named Kent. They live in Durham, North Carolina. What happened in the conversion of a very unlikely convert is a fascinating story worth sharing here on Authors on the Line. Dr. Butterfield recently shared her story in her new book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, published in 2012. And I asked Dr. Butterfield to give us an abbreviated 12-minute version of her very unlikely story, which she was happy to share with us in the first half of this podcast. Well, here's my story in a nutshell, and it comes with a warning this is my story. Uh, it, it is not necessarily diagnostic, and it is not necessarily representative. I'm sharing here with you my heart. Back then, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. I was on a war against stupid, and those who professed the name of Jesus commanded both my pity and my wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that, quote-unquote, knowing Jesus meant knowing nothing else, and Christians in particular seemed to me bad readers, vulgar in the Marxist sense, always seizing an opportunity to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end the conversation rather than to deepen it. It all seemed stupid and pointless and menacing to me. As a professor of English and of women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared deeply about morality, justice, and compassion. I was fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, and I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his little band of warriors if it were not for how other cultural forces buttressed the fierce triangle of God, patriarchy, and politics. Pat Robertson's quip from the 92 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. The surround sound of Christian dogma commingling with Republican politics simply demanded my attention. My life at the time was happy, meaningful, and full. I was not seeking the Lord in any way. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS AIDS activism, children's health care and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. And even if you believe the ghost stories about gay folks promulgated by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity, and I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. And to do this, I began reading the Bible while looking for some Bible scholar to help me work through this complex book. Even before I was smitten by the Bible, I took note that it was a beautiful literary display of every genre and trope and type It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also had a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah. How could people stomach this stuff? Even Job, such a masochist. I read through the Bible the first time, really just trying to find 
examples of things to laugh at. At this time, the Promise Keepers came to town, and they parked their circus at the university. On my war against stupid, I wrote an article published in the local newspaper. It was 1997. This article generated many rejoinders, and one letter that I received defied my ability to figure out what to do with it. It wasn't hate mail. It wasn't fan mail. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was kind and inquiring. It encouraged me to explore the kinds of questions that I admire. The author, Ken Smith, did not, ar- did not argue with my article, but he asked me to defend my presuppositions that undergirded it. And in his letter, he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I truly thought that was insane. I was a historical materialist, and I just didn't know how to respond to the letter, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded my response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is supernatural. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research without him even knowing it. If I was going to understand this book, I figured I might need Ken to help me work through it. He did invite me over for dinner, and so I picked up the phone and called him back. I, I figured it would be good for my research. Well, what happened was a little different. Ken and I became friends. He initiated two years of bringing the church to me. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses and wacky interpretations on placards at gay pride marches, That Christians who mocked me at Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue, but Ken's letter did not mock, and Ken as a person and as a neighbor did not mock. We became friends. We did book exchanges. We talked frankly and openly. He did not act as though discussing matters of politics and sexuality would somehow pollute him in any way. And so for two years, I read and I met with Ken, and I thought about things. And I, I, I read the way a glutton, you know, eats a bag of cookies. I read it many times. That is the Bible. I read through the Bible many times that first year in, in multiple translations. And the text started to take on a life and a meaning um, that startled me. And some of my well-worn arguments no longer really stuck I had really presumed that the Bible was simply oral history, um, that it was a a strange little mishmash of cultural phobias and anxieties. But as I started to read in biblical hermeneutics and, and think about what inspiration meant, biblical inspiration, I really had to pause and think about it. And... As I was reading, of course, I was also working at the university and continuing to be an activist in my GLBT community. And at a dinner party that my partner and I were hosting, my, a friend of mine, a transgendered friend, cornered me in the kitchen and she put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. And I felt exposed. And I said, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and risen? And what if we are all in trouble? She exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair across from me. And her eyes looked wise, even though the makeup that she wore made her look a little distorted for the first time. And she 
told me then that she had been a Presbyterian minister for 15 years and that she had prayed that God would heal her, but he didn't, she said. If you want, I'll pray for you. The next day, when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates of of theological books um, that she had given to me. And I'm flipping through one of the books. It it, uh, just happened to be, providentially happened to be Kelvin's Institutes, Exposition Romans 1, in Jay's handwriting in the corner, watch Romans 1. This is where I will fall. And Romans 1 suddenly looked like the table of contents to my life. I brought, I brought the books in, I opened the Bible, and I looked, and I was horrified by what I saw. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an English professor by training, so I simply looked at the verb clauses in Romans 1, 21 through 27, and, and, it, and it really gave me pause. So... I did not honor God. I knew that. I did not give thanks to God. I knew that. I was engaged in futile speculations, no, no doubt. Um, had I become a fool? I don't know, possibly. Had I exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible? I, I, the whole category of an incorruptible was foreign to a postmodernist. Did God give me over to my lusts? What are my lusts? What was my body made for anyway? Um, I had been reading and rereading the Bible, and so I knew where this passage was going to go. Um, so there I stood for a while. Um, there I stood. It definitely stopped me in my, my tracks. I, I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teachings in the trash. I really tried, but I kept reading it. And I was reading it, you know, not just for pleasure. I was reading it because I was engaged in a research program trying to refute the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. So I was sort of, you know, cheering myself up when I would tell myself that I was, you know, I was doing, this is all research. But it was research that was changing me. It was absolutely changing me. I, I was fighting the idea that the Bible was inspired and inerrant, that its meaning and purpose had a holy and supernatural authority that had been protected over years that its canonicity and its internal logic had some kind of repository of truth. I was a postmodernist. I didn't even believe in truth. I basically stared at this book and said, how in the world could a smart cookie like me embrace this? And so I, st- I, st- I was stuck there for a while. Um, occasionally I would bring these problems to can and and share them with him and and he would just encourage me to to keep reading um he, he pointed out to me at one point that jesus is the word made flesh and that knowing jesus demanded embracing the jesus of the bible not the jesus of someone's imagination that would be the jesus of the whole bible all right, that was a little scary because it meant i could not have jesus and my girlfriend at the same time that was clear after my second or third, maybe fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I, and it absolutely overflowed into my world. I really fought against it. And then one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday morning, I, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. And that's 
that was it. Um, I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God who had suddenly become not just a figment of my imagination or someone else's. That is a fascinating story of grace, and your story is very well told in your book. There's there's sufficient grace for all of us, even a sinner like myself, and that's the very encouraging theme of your testimony. God's grace is all sufficient. How would you, uh, Dr. Butterfield, how would you articulate to listeners the saving gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus came into this world, entered into history. He was born just like any other human person, only he was God, not only human. He suffered a terrible humiliation at being born human. But because of that, he could identify with all of my feelings, all of my concerns, including my confusion about sexuality. Who am I? The Bible says that this is a sin. How could I and everyone else I know be in sin? How could I be tenured in sin? Then Jesus lived on earth for 33 years. And during that time, he did amazing acts of healing and ministry and teaching that his love was never compromised by truth and his truth was never compromised by love that he came into the world so that many could be saved not to judge the world and he died a humiliating and painful and horrific death on the cross and sits now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for our prayers, interceding for our needs, hearing every prayer we have, um, loving us, knowing our weakness, knowing our frailty, um, our, the mercies that he gives to us are renewed each day. And even though there's pain and agony and confusion, including the confusion of, of praying day after day that besetting sins would be taken from us. But yet, you know, there we are, there they are again and again, just facing us down. He, he promises that he will walk through that with us. He promises that we will be separated unto the gospel and that this, this concept of redemption, that it, 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 it tells me that what is true will determine what is beautiful and what is valued. Every promise and in every temptation, there are always three things to be considered. There is the faithfulness of God the Father who created us. There is the grace of Jesus who is always the content of the promise. And he's the content of the promise because he was born a a, baby in a manger that is a a humiliating thing that is meant to command your sense of 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 pity he lived um among people he was tempted in all ways which means he completely understands by the way the struggle of homosexuality he was tempted in all ways but did not sin and so to always know that the grace of jesus is there and then the third thing to always consider is the power of the Holy Spirit who puts that promise 
that promise of liberation into execution. Because Jesus did die on that cross, and he did take all of the punishment to himself, which means that that his grace is sufficient, that we can stop beating ourselves up. Even as we struggle, we do not struggle in shame. And it's a totally different thing to be convicted of a sin by God himself. There is no shame in our sin struggle. And there is no shame in re- repentance of sin. In fact, in fact, we even hear in the Bible, in fact, twice it's mentioned, that repentance is a fruit of the Christian life. That God loves our repentance, which makes no sense to me. Doesn't that suggest that? I mean, he doesn't love sin. How can he love repentance? Well, he knows we're weak. And he loves us in our weakness and in our weakness by faith in grace he is strong and he gives us strength amen thank you for that dr butterfield Uh, what would you say to someone in the gay and lesbian community who is interested in learning more about christianity but they're really nervous about entering a local church i mean they drive by a church uh they know there's a church close by their house Uh, i mean you wrestled with with this tension what would you say to them Oh, I did. I did. I did. I was a church stalker. I, I drove by a church and I'd park my truck in the, uh, not not the parking lot, that seemed like holy turf. You know, I'd park it in the Coles muffler across the street and, you know, watch these, these folks walk through the door and they seem so cleaned up and perfect. And, and I thought, well, Lord, how can I ever talk to these people? And then, it, you know, it struck me as I was reading the Bible that that God says quite clearly that anyone who's going to be a Christian has to give everything up. Not just the easy things. You know, Christianity isn't just for people who like to be a little cleaned up on the surface. And so I think it's important. I don't know how my Christian friends might think of this, but I think it's important that anyone who is outside of the church feel invited and welcome to ask any question of anyone who claims to know Christ, that no Christian should behave in squeamishness. And I, 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 I think that's important. I also think that it's really important that the church reach out to the gay and lesbian community. I think that we, the church, see, because I can, I've been in both communities, when I say we, I, I have to tell you which we, <laughs> that we, the church. We, the church, think, I think we have a delusion going on here, that, that we have been witnessing faithfully for years and years and years, the gay and lesbian community has not responded, therefore there's something hardened about that sin, and we just need to move on. And I think the reality is that uh, the Bible-believing evangelical Christian church has indeed sinned against uh, the GLBT community by failing to share the gospel in love and in some ways failing to do what Ken Smith did to, to me. Ken practiced what's called hospitality. But, my, my husband, who's the pastor of the First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham, is, is preaching through hospitality these days. And last week he informed us that hospitality is not fellowship. Fellowship is having your church friends over, and that's great. But hospitality is inviting the stranger in. 
Yes, that's a very important point. And I want to pick up the theme of hospitality in our next podcast. But as we conclude this podcast, let's conclude with the Bible. You've already talked about Scripture quite a, quite a lot in this podcast, but I want you to articulate the relevance of the Bible. How relevant is the Bible to the needs, to the questions, to the challenges that face a person in the gay and lesbian community? The Bible is relevant to every human being. God made each and every one of us. The Bible cannot be dispensed with. In fact, when Christians have perhaps come to you, my friend, in the gay and lesbian community and have, and have used it in a way that is meant to demean you, you have the right to take this book and read it for yourselves. The Bible is an inspired text. It, it was written by chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It has an internal unity and an authority that we all have to grapple with. It's always tempting for everybody to take our personal experience and to use it as the bar or the measure for how relevant the Bible will be. But there is a verse in the Bible that really, really hit me between the eyes. It was John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know concerning the doctrine. That verse told me very clearly that if I wanted to know why homosexuality was a sin, and I really wanted to argue with God on this point, I really did, then I needed to first do God's will. In fact, even before that, I needed to will to do God's will. And it became very clear to me that I did not will to do God's will. But the Bible flipped that around. I was paid to think, and I thought that you think before you do. The Bible makes it clear that that we need to will to do God's will before we can think. Now, if, if we reject the idea of a holy author of this Bible, and I think that's part of the, the issue here, right? That we've reject, we, we've said that, well, the Bible is true in some parts, but not in others. Here's a cultural, here's a problem, here's a problem. You know, God promises to make us complete and well, he says in Psalm 41. God promises to give us the desires of our hearts if our desires line up with his command and his will for us. The Bible has been subject to God's special care and has preserved as no other writing on earth. But if we reject this idea of a holy author, of an authoritative and a, a unified biblical revelation, we break the line of communication with God. That's how serious it is. The stakes are so high. Thank you, Dr. Butterfield. That was unlikely convert, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, author of the new book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, published by Crown and Covenant in 2012. This was the first of two podcasts we recorded with her from her office in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you for listening to this Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.